If you would join me in taking our Bibles and turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 10, we begin a new chapter this morning, and it is uh, packed. In fact, it is something I don't believe we're actually going to get through in, uh, in one study. I was wondering when there would be a part two in, in our study of Ecclesiastes, and this has to be it. Um, commentators have divided this chapter up in different ways, but I see it all as really being one whole unit, and as a result, I want to deal with it that way, but I, I don't think we're going to have time to get through a little more than half. So with that in mind, you do have uh, your uh, outlines before you. I, I did publish them for you so we could move through this with greater ease, and so I would like to I would like to begin our study by bringing a few introductory remarks. As you uh, are well aware, we use the phrase, what's the wisdom in that, when we want to question the sense of some act, right? Or when we want to question the legitimacy of a policy or a teaching, or whatever it may be, what have you. We say, well, what is the wisdom of having voting machines if if they constantly break down or, or cannot count ballots accurately, it doesn't make any sense. The phrase brings out the obvious, senseless, inane aspect of the action. What's the wisdom in watering your plants in the rain? Uh, or, or talking louder at someone who doesn't speak your language? Yes, that's a common one. In addition to exposing the foolishness of an act, the phrase also speaks of methodology. Now think about this. We, we've used the word epistemology before, and there is some hint of that in the wisdom of saying. The high school student says, oh, I, I don't bother learning mathematical equations anymore, not when I can just ask my phone for the answer, but save so much time and effort methodology. We have another phrase that, that speaks to this idea of methodology as well. We refer to the ways of doing things, ways of doing something. Let me show you the ways of beekeeping, the ways of gardening, the ways of horsemanship. If you were to stay on our ranch, we would eventually show you the ways of the paddock and throw a, a rake in your hand. You hear the implied methodology in those phrases, right? There is a methodology there, and it's the same with the wisdom of saying. Now, it's exactly for those two purposes that I chose this phrase as a title for our study this morning in Ecclesiastes 10, uh, wisdom, the wisdom of folly. And by wisdom of folly, I mean two things, the absolute madness of an action, and number two, the methodology behind the madness. I am talking essentially about one's method to his madness, to be proverbial about it. And before we get into it, I might also say that the sage's word in uh, chapter 10 on the wisdom of folly is, is rather timely for us at our point in history in this nation. For the past 20 or so years, and especially the last 10, it seems as though insanity is very much in style in our country, doesn't it? And I don't mean insane as something certifiable, 
but insane as the extreme expression of folly. We've seen it in the destructive and violent movements, harmful medical procedures performed on children, in the efforts of a small minority of people who want to redefine what a human being is, and in a political system in place right now that calls good evil and evil good. And all of it is quite popular and heavily financially supported by wealthy promoters of the wisdom of folly. The foolish actions of powerful people that are leading this country, the belief in feeling over biological and scientific fact that people should be allowed to steal a certain amount of product from convenience stores without being penalized, freeing hardened criminals from our jails while criminalizing the law enforcement, worshiping the creation instead of the creator, there's, there's no need to go on because it's, it goes on endlessly. The wisdom of folly is painfully apparent all around us. And to put it bluntly, people specialize in stupidity, and they're proud of it. I'm reminded of the statement in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14, regarding false teachers in the church. They are trained in greed, Peter says. And today, there are many in our country who are trained in the fine art of folly, in the ways of the fool. It was true back in the ancient times, and it's just as true today. Nothing is new under the sun, right? People are the same. Now, the sage doesn't address foolish people directly here. His target audience, as you know, is his son, others in his circle of influence, and those who would eventually read this book, like you and me. And I believe that he talks to us about the wisdom of folly at this point for at least two important reasons. Two important reasons. One is to demonstrate explicitly just just how a life grounded in godly wisdom is superior to foolish living. There is nothing like godly wisdom. The other reason is more implicit or implied, and and that is to show the world just how superior godly wisdom is and why they should obviously embrace the way of righteousness instead of the way of folly. And once again, beloved, we see just how important show and tell is for Christians. How important it is to live godly wisdom before the world if we intend to preach it to the world. Now with that said, I believe the thrust of this chapter reflects those two reasons that I just gave you. And here's how I would word it. The wisdom of folly is polar opposite to godly wisdom in that it wounds and kills rather than saves and enriches life, uh, emits, um, I'm sorry, um, uh, emanates rather from a wicked heart rather than a, a redeemed one, is reactive rather than proactive, self-serving rather than gracious, and destructive rather than life-sustaining. Therefore, Embrace godly wisdom. Now, I don't believe that we're going to get through even more than half of this in one study, so let's start to consider the message one part at a time, starting with verse 1. 
the wisdom of folly is is polar opposite to godly wisdom, and its voice wounds and kills rather than saves and enriches life. Now, verse 1 sets the discussion in its proper context by identifying wisdom of folly as being polar opposite of godly wisdom that brings honor. And more specifically, verse 1 addresses one aspect of the wisdom of folly, and that is foolish talk, destructive speech, harmful communication. Let me show you how the sage brings this out. He says, in the same way that dead flies ferment a perfumer's oil and causes it to stink, so a little foolishness is more potent than wisdom and honor. Excuse me. Now the sage wants us to see in this marvelous bit of Hebrew poetry, the importance of truth, or the important truth, rather, that foolish speech wounds and kills, and he uses a triple entendre to do it. A triple what? Right, a triple entendre. You're probably more familiar with the double entendre. And for those of you who are not familiar with it, let me explain it to you. Now, don't be scared. Uh, A double entendre (coughs) is a figure of speech that gives a word or a phrase a double meaning. That's it, just as a double meaning. In other words, there is a word play going on. Okay, so the, the double entendre is very common in Hebrew wisdom literature, like Ecclesiastes. So where do we find this in verse 1? this double entendre, or this triple entendre, a triple meaning given to a phrase or a word. Well, it's in the first half. I'm going to go through this with you because it's absolutely necessary that you understand what the sage is saying, so you're going to have to really think, uh, put your thinking caps on and hang in there with me. Okay, the sage uses one phrase to convey, convey three different meanings. One phrase to convey three different meanings. And you can be sure that His audience, certainly the first to hear it, as well as the latter Israelites who knew the Hebrew language, had no problem understanding this. They knew right away. It's we who are at a disadvantage because we don't know their language. So how do we know that there are as many as three levels of meaning here? Well, let's get into it, and I'll show you how. Are you ready? As we read this first half, we notice the first figure, dead flies, and the second figure, the perfumer's oil, that follows right after. We also notice that they bear some relationship to each other, right? Dead flies ferment and cause the perfumer's oil to stink. That's how they relate. One affects the other. But it's not certain how dead flies cause the perfume to ferment and stink. So there is obviously something more going on here. And there is. The translation, dead flies, is literally flies of death, which means that the flies themselves are not dead, but attracted to the dead, in this case, a dead body. If so, then the sage uses the image of flies covering a dead body to refer to the dead body itself. 
You with me? And you might as well know that there is a figure of speech that uses the part of something to mean the whole of something. For example, we say brass when we mean the military. How does that work? Well, the figure uses the brass medals that they wear to refer to them. Well, the same thing's going on here. Flies on of, uh, of death means a dead body. Now, I might also point out that the verb in this first half, to cause something to stink, is used elsewhere, elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to things that died or spoiled and give off a decaying odor. Okay, so far so good. That's the first image. Now, the second figure, the scented oil, confirms that we are interpreting the flies of death as a dead body correctly. You see, it was the practice in the ancient Near East to put scented oil on dead bodies in order to mask the smell of decay temporarily. The Hebrew word scented in this verse also appears in 2 Chronicles 16 verse 14 to refer to spices that were placed in King Asa's tomb. So we know that the writer of Ecclesiastes is talking about a dead body. We know he's talking about how it's scented with a perfumer's oil. So let's review. The first level of meaning is the figure themselves. The flies of death cause the scented oil to ferment and eventually stink. Yes, but on another level, a second level of meaning, this figurative clause refers, as we said, to a dead body that is covered with scented oil meant to douse the smell of its decay temporarily because eventually it will take on the smell of decay and lose its scent. Now, going deeper on the third level, the sage uses the literal image of death and scented oil to refer to foolish speech. Foolish speech. The second verb, ferment, also means to pour out, as in oil. And you might be interested to know that it is only ever used in the rest of the Old Testament for speech, mostly harmful rhetoric, as it is certainly used here. So this kind of talk has a deadly influence that is not only that is not readily apparent because, like scented oil that masks the smell of death, this speech pours out of the fool's mouth in a way that appeals to and deceives its hearers. It's pleasing to their ears in the same way that the scented oil eventually, uh, well, appeals to the sense of smell, but in the same way that the oil becomes tainted by the stench of death, the fool's rhetoric that influences people will become evident in that it, it will wound them if not lead to their demise. So what's left to explain is how this deeper third level of meaning fits with the second part of the verse, verse 1. And here's how it fits. <clears throat> the fool's lethal and deceptive speech is parallel to folly in the second half of the verse. So in the same way that foolish rhetoric 
may be expressed in scented words that please, only eventually turn rancid. So folly, even in small doses, can impact a situation under the sun even more than godly wisdom. We can say that another way. Foolish talk is potent. It's more so than godly wisdom in contexts where godly wisdom is not popular. In fact, quite offensive. And where foolish rhetoric resonates with the worldly listeners, even though in the end it will have a necrotic effect on them. It will lead to their destruction. Folly in public discourse, in interpersonal relationships, will neither save nor enrich life, but will surely wound and kill in the end. The epitome of the folly, of such folly, of such foolish speech, I think, was Satan's lie, if you remember, to the first couple in Genesis 3. That was masked behind edible fruit. In verse 6, Moses says that the lie behind the fruit became suddenly irresistible to the woman. Do you remember? This is how he put it. She saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took some of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband with her and he ate. Well, when Hebrew wants to emphasize how fast a, a progression takes place, in this case, giving into temptation and sinning, it lists verbs in rapid succession without much explanation in between them. <clears throat> so, she saw, she took, she ate, she gave, he ate. And that was it. And almost as soon as they embraced the lie, <clears throat> fruit and all, its necrotic effects were felt almost immediately. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. The wisdom of folly promotes a way of communicating that wounds and kills. The implication, of course, is that godly wisdom gives life and sustains life. If Adam had only trusted God's counsel, his wisdom, <clears throat> he, would, he would not have died. And once redeemed by God, Adam did trust in God's gospel, most, uh, more godly wisdom, of course, that Christ would later fulfill. So part of the admonition here is to avoid foolish talk, hurt and, uh, hurtful and lethal rhetoric of the fool, and embrace words that save life and sustain life. That's obvious in verse 1. Foolish talk is essentially the words of the dead, spiritually dead. And they can only breathe, uh, breed death, keep a person in spiritual darkness and in condemnation. Another part of admonition that is obvious is to enlighten the foolish with the wise message of the gospel, while, uh, while the hope is that through it, God will open the eyes of the fool to the truth. Now that would be that would be our responsibility. Number two, such foolish rhetoric comes from a wicked heart rather than a redeemed one. So see that your heart is redeemed, the sage says. This is in verses two and three. The focus so far has been on the voice of folly. 
foolish discourse. And we learn in verse 2 where it comes from. According to the sage, it's the fruit of a wicked and unredeemed heart. Notice, a wise person's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish person's heart directs him toward the left. It's the heart of both, the fool and the godly wise, that directs each in his own walk of life. The fool in his direction and the godly wise in the completely opposite direction. And the right and the left in Hebrew thought, when used together in this way, stands for the righteous way and the wicked way, respectively. And what makes a person go in one direction or the other is the condition of his heart. The heart in Hebrew thought is the control center of the person. It's the inner man. It's the real you, that place that only you and God know. And a wicked heart will produce fruit in keeping with its nature. And the same for a redeemed heart. Much later, Jesus would teach his disciples this valuable lesson, this wise principle, that it's the nature of the individual that constitutes his activity. He said, so every good tree bears good fruit, but every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. And then there's his statement in Luke 6.45. It is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. One implication of our text, then, is that the fool is certainly bound by his nature to go in a completely opposite direction of the godly wise. He's bound. He has no choice, you see, but to go in that direction because he's bound by his nature to go in that direction. He loves that direction. The logical consequences of the wicked fool's condition is that he can never produce fruit that is righteous or that God would ever accept. And that's why, by the way, salvation is such a marvelous work of God. When God reconciles a sinner, he changes that fallen nature so that the person will love God, love God's gospel, Christ, and the godly way of life. The redeemed wants to embrace it, and he wants to go in a godly direction, completely opposite of the godless one that he was in. If you've ever wondered of late how certain famous people, certain movie stars, sports personalities, political personalities, billionaires can actually promote a certain agenda, an evil agenda, or say certain things that are so obviously foolish, insane even, one sure answer is because their nature craves such things. We've had occasion to bring up Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, several times throughout our study of Ecclesiastes, and that's because it reveals the utter folly of the godless. And we remember there that Paul speaks of God giving giving people over to their passions, remember, which perverted them, sent them headlong into gross immorality. So we can understand why those who are by nature wicked will be characterized by foolish living, right? Even if the foolish that characterize the foolishness that characterizes him is considered by 
by the world or worldly standards is wise, we're not fooled for a moment. Jesus said that we will know people by their fruits, which is what the sage basically says in verse 3. If you take a peek there, even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking, and he demonstrates to everyone that he's a fool. And even though the fool, by all outward appearances, goes in a senseless direction that becomes evident to all, you can be assured that most of the time he cannot see it. Which means that there is an element of self-deception bound up with the wisdom of folly. He believes in his own foolish ways. He's embraced his, his own folly. The Apostle Paul, you might remember, told Timothy about such men who were uh, filtering into the church. He called them false teachers in 2 Timothy 3. In verse 13, he warns that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's an interesting phrase at the end. We can make two observations about that statement. First, Paul utters it in the larger context of the gospel where he goes on to tell Timothy in just a couple of verses further that this wisdom of folly is not what he learned. Rather, he learned the scriptures, which alone are able to make one wise unto salvation. Paul makes a deliberate contrast then between the foolish rhetoric of false teachers and God's scripture, which is wise and able to save. The second observation is that these evil men... And notice they are evil by nature, which is why they commit evil, deceive others by their rhetoric that they themselves have bought into. They are self-deceived. They believe the foolishness that comes from their hearts and out of their mouths. And while they go on to deceive many, those, of course, who embrace a godly wisdom will not be deceived. That, I believe, is really what the sage is getting at here when he says that the, that the foolish activity will become evident to all. And that would be all those, of course, who have embraced godly wisdom. Biblical faith teaches us that those who possess it can know what is truly righteous and wise from what is truly unrighteous and foolish. Even when the, the culture repackages those when it repackages unrighteousness and foolishness and wickedness as something virtuous, we have the light, beloved. We have the truth to expose falsehood. And if we ever mis- are ever misled, well, it's only because we haven't done our homework, and that's on us. Now, in light of this truth, then, the, uh, the implied application should be obvious. Make sure that your heart is right. Make sure that it's been redeemed, that it loves righteousness and cultivates a love and a desire to follow Christ all the days of your fleeting life. If your heart is redeemed, then you'll have the ability to follow Christ and apply his wisdom and not be taken in by falsehood. And that's something that we can not only promise Uh, to any unbeliever who turns from dumb idols to the living God, but we can show them that we have as well. Again, 
another important responsibility on our part. There's a great difference in the way that the redeemed handle life and the way the fool handles life. I think we're at an advantage. That's why we can show them godly truth. Remember, the sage has just made the point that godly wisdom and the wisdom of folly go in completely opposite directions of each other and that the fool's senseless life becomes evident then. By the same token, the life of the godly wise will become evident to the fool of this age. And we'll see one example of that in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Here we see the folly, or the wisdom of folly, is reactive or reactionary. But godly wisdom is proactive. We move from the voice of folly now to her actions And we see in verse 4 that folly is reactive in those situations where godly wisdom is proactive. The sage says, if the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your place, because composure puts great offenses to rest. What's the sage getting at here? Well, the context, I think, is easy enough to recognize. We have a fool serving in the king's court, a familiar scenario that the sage has already used on two other occasions. And in this one, the king loses his temper against the foolish servant. Why? We don't know. But we don't need to know because the emphasis is on the response of the foolish servant who, who would tend to walk out either in a huff or in protest to the king's harsh and, and maybe unwarranted outbursts. But a harsh and unwarranted as the king's outburst might be, the the foolish servant's response would greatly offend the king, wouldn't it? Who could basically say and do whatever he wants in his own kingdom, and the servant puts his own life in jeopardy. uh, Verse 4 says that it is to be expected from fools to behave this way. Fools are reactive. You know, Oxford defines reactive this way, responding to a situation rather than creating or controlling it. Isn't that an interesting definition? Reactive responses are thoughtless responses. They are from the gut responses. We might say fleshly responses, in the heat of the moment responses. To react means to return evil for evil. You holler at me, I holler back. It's an ungodly response that cares nothing for the person on the end of the reactive behavior. Reactive responses care only for self. In fact, they're designed for self-preservation. Hey, what about my needs? You forgot me. This kind of thing, this reactive way of the fool. The reference in James chapter 3, verse 9 of cursing people who have been made in the likeness of God is a good example of being reactive. The godly wise, on the other hand, no matter how personally offended, whether warranted or not, should always be proactive in these situations. Always. To be proactive means to take control of the situation or to handle it in a godly way for God's glory. That is, to fairly and accurately represent God, 
to give truth that fits the need of the moment and that benefits the hearer in some way is gracious and long-suffering. That's a, a very proactive way of dealing with a situation. And by the way, godly rebuke done in love and with all gentleness fits into this category. I need to mention that because that's one of the one of the areas of, of, of godly responses, godly proactive activity that always seems to come under fire. You know, there were many times when Jesus told his audience about, uh, told his audience the truth about themselves. And had they listened, they would have benefited greatly by it. And so in the sage's example, the situation would, would not would not control the godly as it did the fool, prompting him to protest and abandon his position. Rather, the godly would be in control of himself. The sage mentions composure. He is composed. He handles the situation in a godly fashion. He knows that through patience, a ruler may be persuaded, Proverbs twenty-five fifteen. He also knows the right time and their right place to carry out certain necessary courses of action, and he will not be swayed by his flesh or the persecutions and pressures of his environment to act foolishly. The foolish, the fool, on the other hand, cannot help but behave according to his nature. And that's so true. Well, we have much more to say from this chapter, <clears throat> and uh, also to get to the punchline, which will take a, way, a, a while for us to get to. But um, that'll have to wait till next time. We, I think, have said enough to, 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 to send us from this place this morning, hopefully energized to live Christ to the world, hopefully responsible uh, in the way we respond to the world by being proactive in our godliness. There's a lot of insanity out there, lots of satanic ideologies floating around, even, even impersonating godliness. But those of us who know Christ and have his mind in the Bible and the indwelling Holy Spirit inside of us, who helps us to understand and apply the Bible, we are fully outfitted to meet whatever is going to confront us out there in a way that will bring glory to God and challenge all who are deceived by the wisdom of folly. Paul said that godliness does not come easy, right? We have to train ourselves to be godly in the air, in all areas of life, in our speech, in our behavior especially. We need to be careful to guard our hearts with Scripture. We need to be wise in the way we live the Christian life before the world. If our message is going to have any uh, legitimacy to it in the ears of the unsaved, it's, you know, it's no wonder that Paul told Titus with regard to the young men of his church, urge them to be sensible, that's wise. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. In our scripture reading for this morning out of 1 Peter 3, we see the necessity also there of giving, of living godly, not only with each other, 
but also among non-Christians. Peter's words are, are so very sobering, and I think they're clear enough. We're to be harmonious in this world. People are to look upon the body of Christ and see a, a unified, cohesive body that is of one mind, that care deeply for each other, that recreate a situation that is as close to heaven as anybody could ever get or see, and then be jealous for that. We're to be sympathetic, loving, compassionate, and humble. That is a wise way to conduct ourselves with each other and also with people on the outside. We're not to return good for evil or insult for insult. We're to give blessing instead because we were called to this very purpose in order that we might inherit a blessing. This is all behavior, by the way, that, that, that God delights in. <clears throat> Peter quotes from the Old Testament, the one who desires life to love and see good days, he must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. That's, that's something that characterizes the fool, the deceitful speech, as we've seen already. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against evildoers. Not only are the direction, uh, the directions of the evildoer and the righteous completely opposite of each other, but the way that the Lord receives the righteous and the wicked are completely opposite of each other as well. For us, he, uh, we are blessed, and he blesses us, shows us his favor, answers our prayers. But for the evildoer... Uh, God is opposed. And whether God takes out full vengeance on an evildoer on this earth or not, we can be sure that in the end, he will face God's full wrath. Something that is meant for, for those outside of Christ. Peter tells us, listen, go ahead and behave this way in order to please God that he might use you as a testimony in the world. And don't be afraid for whatever treatment you might receive as a result. He says in verse 13, who's there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. This is finds favor with God. And don't fear their intimidation and do not be in dread. The last thing we want to do is is, be, is to be um, manipulated by fear into giving responses that fit more or in more in keeping with the wisdom of folly than with godly wisdom. Rather, we're to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. That means we need to obey him. And we need to obey his word so that we will be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that is in us. And we need to do it with all gentleness and all respect. Godly wisdom, so very different from the wisdom of folly, which is very real. It is a reality with most in this world, those certainly outside of Christ. It not only depicts their senselessness, but it also shows their methodology. May the Lord be pleased to use 
our lives, our speech, and our activity in such a way as to bring that all to light, that there would be conviction of sin and repentance and a turning to Christ from dumb idols. Father, we thank you for this time together. Brief though it was, we're grateful for your word, for your truth, which stands forever. We're grateful that it imparts to us a wisdom unlike anything else, that it shows us what is true, shows us what is false. It it shows us the, the right direction to take, direction that may at times seem rather illogical or harmful or impractical, but we must trust that your word is always right and seek our refuge there. Lord, may this be true of us as we live Christ to the world in these last days in all of the insanity and all of the foolishness surrounding us. And Father, we pray that as a result you would be pleased with us and that you would be pleased to use us in great ways for the kingdom. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.